0: Colossians chapter 3. I'm reading out of the New King James Version this morning. And let's to get some context here. Let's start in verse 1. Paul writes, "If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things, not on things on the earth. For you died, And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things... The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which yourselves, you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So Father, we thank you this morning for your word, Lord. We thank you for this school. We thank you for this opportunity we have, God, to gather here. Uh, Thanks, Lord, so much for what you've done for us, God. You've done so much for us, and uh, this morning as we open up your word and we sit to hear your word taught, Lord. Um, we just would ask, God, that that you would fill this this space and in this time, God, that you would intervene here in such a way that we could actually hear from you, God. We So we, we pray those things in Jesus' name, asking for you to be here. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. As I am going through the notes of what I've prepared, uh, I pray ultimately, God, it would be your voice and your word spoken to our hearts. And so... Father, we pray again you'd fill this space and bless this time in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, well, so for our note takers this morning, uh, if you're taking notes, the title of my message this morning is Sequential Salvation. Today we want to talk about this idea of sequential salvation, salvation. Now, If you spend any length of time in church or some sort of Christian culture or subculture, there's just certain words that you're bound to hear more than others. I was raised in the church, uh, in the church culture, Um, as far back as I can remember. There's like ninja turtles in church. Like if I go all the way back, that's what I see. And my whole upbringing was raised in a church subculture, in a church community. And from that experience, there's just certain words that I heard more, than of, more often than not and um, that I came to say myself and just kind of know. It's, it's, it's what culture does. Anywhere you go, uh, whatever the culture may be, there's certain phrases, there's certain ideas, there's certain catchphrases that just are a byproduct of the culture that you're in. And I remember the experience was so unique when I transitioned in middle school from like the Christian subculture background, and I went to public middle school, Two different words, a clash of words, a clash of vernacular, I mean, words that I grew up knowing, thinking everybody else knew these words or, or, or was taught these words, uh, they just weren't, there are other words that they were taught that I also learned in middle school, um, but it's just true, uh, especially in church, that there are just certain words that not only have we learned, but that we just, we hear all the time. And if you hang around long enough around some Christians, you're going to hear these words. And, uh, that, you know, that can be a good thing. It can be a good thing because hopefully what that does is it teaches you to value something. That's often what happens there. When you're hearing a certain consistent, you know, usage of some words, it's often leading you to value something. Or at least it's leading you to see what this community values in the language that they use. Now, though it can be a good thing, there is a downside To that, especially in the church. The downside to overused words that we just hear and say and and use over and over again is that we can end up actually losing the weight of what the intending meaning of those words were in the first place. We can sometimes use words so often and so almost like carelessly and naturally that we lose sight of the weight and the worth of that word in the first place I don't know if you know where I'm getting at with this, but I don't know if there's a word, in my personal opinion, I don't know if there's a word that we talk about and say more with sort of maybe a a lack of weight to it than the word salvation. This is a church word, right? Have you heard this concept in church before? I'm sure you've heard, hey, when did you get saved? Are you saved? Oh, new boyfriend? Okay, is he saved, Okay. Saved. Did they get saved? They got saved. Are you saved? We're saved. Saved. Now, this is, a, a, again, a common question, a common word that's used in the church, this word salvation. We, we use it almost to the point to where we, I think, miss the weight that it's intended to communicate. So here's a good question we should ask this morning. What is salvation? This is an important thing for us to do for all the words that we kind of throw around with our what's been called our Christianese, you know, our Christian talk, our Christian language. What does the word actually mean? What did God have in mind when he revealed this idea to us of salvation? Now, the reason why I think it's so important for us to understand what God has said about salvation is because there's a lot of different opinions and perspectives in our community and our culture about salvation, and so if we want to bring the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to understand, first and foremost, what does culture think about this word salvation? And what does the Bible teach about salvation? So that we're not just, you know, throwing out empty words without truly studying to know what, what they mean. We've got to dust off some of these Christian-y word, Christianese words. We need to revisit the heart of what they mean. Now, before I, I go into that, I actually was reminded of a a man on the street question, you ever seen these like asking people on the street question and answer video that uh, our youth group my youth group did about six years ago. We did this conference with some students called the D3 Conference. I think some, I don't know, some students here might've been at that. Um, all right, David was there. All right, um, it was just me and David, actually. We were the only two there. But, um, but, um, and it was a conference about doctrine and apologetics. And one of the questions was, what is salvation? We were teaching this to high school kids. And so I found this video. It's just a perfect, I think, fit for us this morning. And it's uh, interviewing people around the city of Boca, um, asking them what they think about salvation. So what, is, what does our community think about this, this word? And remember, this is five years ago, but it's, I'm sure it's still true today. So check this out. So, man, I think that's pretty insightful, isn't it? All, this wide range of opinions and ideas about what salvation is. So if we're going to use this world, we have to understand that there's other definitions that people have about this word. We can't just use it like a catch-all phrase. I think John Mark Comer talks about this a little bit in the book that we've been reading, God Has a Name, that even when we use words like God, we can't use those word, that word assuming that everybody is, is, is believing the same thing about what that means. When we use the word salvation, we even as a church, as, as Christians, we gotta make sure there's weight to what we're saying. So man, I could spend a nine-week series breaking down all the different aspects of what salvation is. So to protect our time, <laughs> I did this. I created a little Salvation 101 idea. Here's, here's, Let's start with this. When we talk about salvation, here's just a few thoughts about salvation from the biblical perspective. Again, we could spend days on this idea, but just kind of as a 30,000 feet above look at what the Bible teaches about salvation, the first thing that we have to understand is, is what it is. What is salvation? The word salvation, biblically, is, is a word of rescue and deliverance, okay? Not a word of self-discovery like you heard in the video or a word of arrival, but a word of intervention, of divine intervention. And it has to do specifically with rescue from sin and its effects. You'll find that people's understanding and definition of salvation is largely connected to their understanding of sin, if there is no sin, there's no need for salvation. If all we have is issues, we just need some advice, right? We, we just need to figure out how do I get my, you know, my issues reduced. But if we understand the reality of sin, the wages of sin being death, and we'd understand the nature of salvation, it's, it's rescue. So we need to understand that first. So 1 Timothy 1.15 says, for example, 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's rescue. The second thing is we ask this question, who does it? If we're going to use this word, we should understand these things. Who does salvation? And the answer is God, our Savior. We could say God, our Savior, and no one else. In fact, that's this, this title that's given to God often throughout the Bible, that he is God, our Savior. He is our Savior. He is the Savior. First Timothy 4.10, it says it so simply in 1 Timothy 4.10, it says that God is the Savior of all men. It says, especially those who believe. But he is the savior of all men. So who saves us? We need to understand that it's God. And I think this needs to be reminded in the church today. You don't save yourself by praying a prayer. We are saved by the grace of a rescuing God. Do you see your salvation that way? Do you see your salvation as something that you complied with or something that God has miraculously done to pull you out of your circumstance? That's biblical salvation. The Bible says it this way, salvation is of the Lord. It's in Jonah it says that, Psalm 3.8 says that. It's, something that. it's not something we arrive at or achieve. It's something that we are in desperate need of God doing for us. Okay, we, the idea is we are drowning and we are in need of a lifeguard. We're in need of a rescue. So what is salvation? It's rescue from sin and its effects, from death. Who rescues us? Who does it? It's God and God alone. He is the savior, which also, let me say one word about this. And i got to stop saying these one words, otherwise we'll be here forever. But one, one, one word. Um, this also, I think, is something that can fuel us in our evangelism. Knowing that when I preach the gospel to someone, it's not the eloquence of my speech that saves that person. Every person in this room has been saved because God saved you. God did it. And so when we're seeking to reach people, there's great hope to know, listen, does, regardless of what our community believes about salvation, the hope of them being saved is God. It's the one who does the rescuing. Now, how does God do this? How does He do it? He does it solus Christus. He does it through Christ alone, through Jesus alone, who came, the Bible says, to seek and to save that which was lost. Acts chapter 4 says this that there is no other name given under heaven and earth by which man can be saved, Jesus alone. Now, why does God do it? That's a good question. Why does God do it? Well, the Bible tells us that God rescues and saves sinners through his son Jesus for the glory of his name. For the glory of his name. We're reading this book right now called God Has a Name, which is describing to us who God is and what he's like. It's his character. It's the truth about who he is. And there's these great revelations about who God is, like that God is merciful and he's gracious. And it's that character and that, those characteristics that lead God to save. And this is just so important, too, to remember that God doesn't save. You know, sometimes like we can think about God saving, like, those machines that you put the quarter in and you have to do the, like, on Toy Story, you know, you have been chosen, you know, and so that's the Calvinist, right? But, like, you're going and, and you're doing the joystick and it's like, it's very mechanical. And a lot of times we can think of salvation and we can think of God like a mechanical arm to rescue people and we fail to understand who God is in salvation. He's not a mechanical savior. He's a a God of mercy. So why does God save? well, the Bible says in Titus chapter 3 that it's according to his mercy that he saves us. He saved you because he looked upon you, and he loved you, and he had mercy on you. It wasn't this mechanical, you have been, boom, it was out of his grace and his love, and I think it's worth saying at the end of this too, First uh, Timothy 2, 3, and 4 says this, that God, he desires all men to be saved. That mercy that God has in his heart, it's, it's, it's wider than our mercy is. The people that God is looking at with compassion to rescue are often not people that we're looking at. And so we can sometimes, listen, in the name of good theology, we can often neglect God's heart for people. God loves people. He wants all men to be saved. He wants your family members to be saved more than you do. He wants your college campus to be reached more than you do. Do do we believe this? That God wants to rescue people from sin and its effects through Jesus here in Boca Raton more than we do. Because he's merciful. So, Salvation 101. Salvation 101. Now, four questions asked here. What, who, how, Why? Maybe a basis entry level understanding of salvation. But I want to add a fifth question here that the Apostle Paul has led us to ask this morning in Colossians 3. And I believe that this is one of the most insightful questions about salvation that's never asked. And that is the question of when? When? You're going, oh, come on, Andrew. You're going to get into this whole Calvinism, Arminianism thing, okay? When? Before the foundations of the world, Andrew. I know when I was saved, okay? Now, I don't mean what's your understanding of eternity as it relates to space and time. No, I mean what the Bible talks about when it uses the word salvation. The Bible speaks about salvation in a, almost a sequence of time. In fact, the way that we see it in Scripture is we see salvation occur in a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. So when we use the word salvation in church, are you saved? Have you been saved? We need to remember there's a when to that word. There's more to I prayed a prayer. There's more to I became a Christian. Biblically, what we see in Scripture is we see that this God who is outside of space and time, he works within space and time, And when he saves people like you and me in space and time, the scriptures give us these past, present, and future tenses that he does it. You're going, what are you talking about? Let me give you some more color to that statement. For example, in the Bible, there's verses that talk about how you have been saved. There's also verses that talk about how you are being saved. And then there's verses that talk about this idea that one day you will be saved. So, which is it? <laughs> have I been saved? Am I being saved? Will I one day be saved? And I think the writers of the New Testament would say, yes. Okay. In theology, uh, you have this Latin phrase that's used to describe this it's ordo salutis. A little Latin phrasing, you know, theology for you this morning. Ordo salutis. And it speaks to the order of salvation. Romans 8, is a, I think it's verses 29 and 30, is one of the greatest breakdowns of this. It goes into great detail. But that's what we're talking about. We're talking about this idea of salvation happening in your life in sequence. Again, as I said, it's sequential salvation. Sequential salvation. Here in, in Colossians 3, um, that's what Paul is talking about. We just read these verses. And in verses 3 through 5, in just three verses, Paul talks about Salvation. In a sequential way, he talks about it as something that as Christians we have experienced, we are experiencing, and we will experience. He speaks of three sequences of salvation. That's what I want to focus now our time on, the when salvation occurs. The first thing he starts with is a past tense salvation that we've experienced. So write this down, number one. The first thing we see is we see a past tense salvation that we'll call the work of justification, the work of justification, which can be defined, this salvation, you may may have heard this if you spent a day or two in church before, but the word um, of justification speaks to us as Christians, us as, we should start here, us as people who have been saved from the penalty of sin. Where does he say that? Well, look at verse three. He says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You died, past tense, and your life is hidden. It's been hidden, past tense, with Christ in God. Let's unpack this. This work of justification, being saved from, again, the penalty of sin. This is where everyone walks into the door of relationship with Christ. Walks into the door of of knowing God and the hope of eternal life. It's through being what the Bible describes as being justified. Justified. Being saved from the penalty of sin. This is something the scripture doesn't shy away from. That there is a penalty that all of humanity is facing as a consequence of our willful rebellion against God. The way it says in Romans 6 is, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. All right? The wages, in other words, the paycheck. Okay? We've put in the work of Rebellion. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the paycheck that we get, right, because that's what a wage is. It's what you deserve in light of what you've put in. It's a cause and effect principle. And because we have all rebelled against God, humanity, this is the reality, we all face the wages of sin, which is death. Now, I think one of the mistakes we make often is we fail to define death. Now, certainly death has to do with a physical experience, a physical experience consummation and ending of life. But God had so much more in mind when he told Adam and Eve that if you eat of this fruit, if you sin against me, you will surely die. It had to be so much more than physical because how many of us know what happens in the story? Do they go on to physically die? No. But do they die? Yes. They are removed from the presence of God. See, that's what death is. That's what the penalty of our sin is, and that's what we all need to be saved from, this separation that has occurred through sin. We've been separated from God, and if you've ever lost a loved one before, I don't know if there's a truer word that can be used to describe the experience of death. It's separation, isn't it? It's ungrasped. You know, there's no ability to grasp it. It's unreachable separation. That's the, one of the most difficult things about losing a loved one. You don't lose their memories, but you're, you're separated now. It feels onto forever. We'll talk about in a second the hope there, but separation. And listen, that is at the root issue of what sin has caused. Yeah, one consequence is that we will physically die, but the worst of all is that apart from Jesus, the surrounding world... They're headed for an eternity of separation from God. Eternal death. It's spiritual death, separation from God here and now. It's physical death that we all are fully aware of. But then there's this reality of eternal death, being separated from the presence of God for all of eternity, the penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death. God says in Isaiah, listen, it's not that my arm is too short, that I can't save you. It's not that my ear is too heavy. You know, I got to go to the ENT. I can't hear well. He says, the issue is that your sins have separated you from me. What do we need? Well, we need to be saved. We need to be, and the Bible uses this word, we need to be justified. Justification, listen, is the work that God does when He saves us from our separation, from our death back into relationship with him and back into life. Justification, it's how God saves us out of our separation. Um, And the way that the Bible describes justification is it's something that God does. That's why I wrote the work of justification. It's a work. Now, it's not a work we do. It's a work that God does. The word justification, it's a legal term. It, It means to be declared righteous, innocent, not guilty, no flaw. It's like Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin. And they could not find one fault in him. Sinless, righteous. Now, every person in this room knows that when we come before the stand of God, we're not justified. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We stand before God unrighteous. We stand before God separate in our sin. So what do we need? We need to be rescued. What do people do? Unfortunately, instead of letting God justify us, a lot of times what we can do is we seek to justify ourselves. Self-justification. We do this in a lot of different ways in life. We try to justify our behavior. Oh, this is why I did it. Or we try to justify ourselves spiritually. A lot of us even are Christians and we're still trying to justify ourselves. We're trying to make right all the wrong I've done. Or we're trying to make ourselves right with God. Got to be justified. Got to be justified. Got to justify myself. And the good news of the gospel is not that you justify yourself, but that God justifies you. It's the work of justification. And the Bible is clear that it's a work that God does. How? By faith. We are, as Christians, we are justified not by our works. All right? The whole book of Romans is my reference for you on that. Specifically the first four chapters. But we know the Bible says that by the deeds of the law, no man, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. There's not going to be one person who stands before God one day on judgment day or gets to heaven and says, all right, God, here I am. And God goes, whoa. I got to tell you. You're impressive. You made it. Come on in. Thy good and faithful servant. You did it. Not one person is going to be able to get to heaven and pat themselves on the back for their access into heaven. I did it. I earned it. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. The good news of the gospel is that though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Anybody wants some of this? I'll sign up for this. I can be, you can be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Jesus. Amen? That's the gospel. The gospel isn't here's what you have to do to be right. It's here's what Jesus did to make you right. We're justified freely by his grace because, listen, it's free because we were purchased by Jesus. Someone else bought it for you. It's free. Free through the grace that's in Jesus. So we say this. We say solus Christus. It's through Christ alone. But we also say sola fide. It's by faith alone. And we say sola gratia. It's through grace alone. Not according to works, Ephesians 2 says, right? Lest anyone can boast, right? So when you get to heaven and people look at you and go, how'd you get here, right? I'm like, how did, I know you. How did you do it? Who'd you talk to? When they ask you, how did you get here? You could look them in the eyes and say the same way you did through Jesus, through Jesus. And so Paul, he's expounding here in Colossians 3 on this work of justification that a Christian experiences. This is the first tense of salvation, a past tense salvation, that God justifies us. He declares us righteous. In theology, it's this idea of declaratory righteousness. You're declared righteous. Now, how are we declared righteous? And it's In 2 Corinthians 5, the Bible says that we are declared righteous through our faith because we have an exchange with Jesus. On the cross, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, knew no unrighteousness, to be sin on my behalf, because that's what I'm full of, so that I could be called the righteousness of God in him in him it's it's also called imputed righteousness it's credited to my account it's not something i've earned and done the work and so now oh look at my spiritual bank account god loves me he loves me more it's not like that i don't work god's love up for me because jesus finished the work for god to love me it is finished he said completed the work so that today what i can say is listen i'm righteous i'm righteous now, that might sound self-righteous, and it will, it will, and it, and it will be if you think that your righteousness is dependent upon your works. But it's the free gift of Jesus' work through the exchange of the cross. We are declared righteous. We are justified. Now, you might have heard this before, too. What does it mean to be justified? Well, it's just as if I'd never sinned, justified. That's good news because I know I've sinned, (laughs) justified, just as if I haven't. Because why? Paul says, here's why, ready for this, Colossians 3? Because now as a Christian, my life is hidden with Christ in God. My life is hidden with Christ in God. What a great explanation that Paul gives us there in verse 3 of justification. All of your record, your spiritual criminal record, all of your flaws, all of your failures, all of your shortcomings, all of our sins, all of the brokenness of our life in Christ gets hidden in Jesus, which is such good news because isn't that all what we're after? We're after how do these stains go away? How does the shame go away? How can I cover up? I don't wanna look at it anymore. I know my past. I know my history, and there's two options. You try to scrub away with religious activity, or you receive the free gift of righteousness and your life gets hidden with Christ in God. That's what Paul says we have in Christ. You know the song, don't you? Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. There's nothing wrong with saying, God, can I come hide in you? God, I've sinned, I've fallen short. I feel, dis- I feel shameful, I feel broken. Can you be my hiding place? Not only does God invite us in, he brings us in. That's what he's done through the gospel. He's given you a hiding place. He wants to be your hiding place. You don't have to walk around in shame and trying to hide your own sin because you've already been hidden in Christ. Now, rock of ages cleft for me. This idea is you're split for me. You were cut for me. You were broken for me. That's Jesus, isn't it? Isn't Jesus the rock of ages who was cleft so that we could be hidden in God? That's the gospel. In fact, that, that song, that hymn, it goes back to the days of Moses, when Moses wanted to see God's glory. And God said, okay, the only way you can see my glory and not be consumed is if I tuck you away in this rock here. And that's true for all of us as well. We have been tucked away in Christ. We have been hidden with Christ in God. The way that Paul says it in Philippians 3 is he says this. Now, before these verses, Paul's talking about his, um, his spiritual scorecard, okay? And Paul's listing, there's a bunch of people in this church who are like boasting in their, in their spirituality, And Paul comes on the scene as a gospel-centered believer, and he says, oh, nice, nice job, nice scorecard. Let me just real quick list my uh, resume for you real quick. And he goes through this just incredibly intimidating and impressive list, like, AKA, if you think you're awesome, I'm way more awesome, is what Paul pretty much does. I was a Pharisee, circumcised on the eighth day. You were on the ninth day. You got it all messed up, all right? You know, he like goes through this thing, and he he basically, well, he describes what most of our flesh really wants. He describes a, a righteous record. But in discovering Jesus, he says, what I've done with that spiritual scorecard is I've taken it and I've ripped it up. He says, what was gained to me in verse eight, these things that were gained to me, my own righteousness, he says, I counted them as loss. He says, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. And he goes, and I count them as rubbish. In the Greek, dung, my religiosity, my spiritual scorecard, it is that. It's number two. And I count it that way. He says that I may gain Christ, and notice this, and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Listen, this morning, do you see yourself as someone who's been justified? Declared righteous through your faith in the finished work of Jesus. Do you see yourself as someone who has been hidden with Christ in God? Hidden. All of your flaws, all of your failures, covered by the rock of ages. So that, listen, you can be found. if, if, If spiritual hide and seek were to happen, you would be found not having your own righteousness, but a foreign righteousness that was given to you When you, listen, when you live here, when I live here, when I see myself as who I am in Christ, not based on what I've done, whether good or bad, my relationship with God is free to be what God intended. I'm able to relate to him as a son to a father. I'm able to relate to him according to intimacy and knowledge of who he is because I'm not like, sure, well, do you accept me? It's done. It's done. When you hide in Christ, the natural progression is that you seek Christ. And I think it's interesting that this is connected to the verses we looked at last week, right? Which is seeking the things above. Um, I started thinking of it this way. There's really, when it comes to relationship with Christ, there's two kinds of hide and seek that we can play. It's one of the favorite games in the Lundy household. Um, mostly because I just love to watch Evie walk into a room and stand in the middle of it while she's hiding. And it's just really fun to discover her like this in the room, like, hey, <laughs> she just is standing there. But, you know, we can, we can play, in a sense, um, hide and seek with God. I think there's a positive way to do hide and seek with God. And we just talked about it. Hide in Christ, seek the Lord, know him. But there's this tendency for us to, well, to do what Adam and Eve did because of shame and our hide and seek with God is not I'm hidden with Christ so I seek him but he's seeking me so I need to hide he's seeking me because I've sinned it's what shame does shame hides and it covers yourself Adam and Eve they covered themselves their own coverings let me let me cover my own sin here I'll take care of it this way fig leaves go figure right okay Self-justification. Let me cover myself. You see, that's what shame does. Shame does some hard work to cover sin. Shame hides. Listen, grace pursues. Shame causes you to hide. Grace causes you to pursue Christ because you know you've been hidden. So what kind of hide and seek are you involved in today? Do you see yourselves as hidden with Christ in God, seeking the Lord, or do you see yourselves as Hiding from God, thinking He's seeking you because you've sinned. Um, my encouragement to us today, in light of justification, is you have been saved, so come out of your hiding. Come out of your hiding. And maybe that looks like you starting to be a bit more transparent with some of the other people that you've met here in this church. Maybe you don't need to hide as much anymore because you see yourself as already hidden. There's nothing to hide, you're hidden in Jesus. So there's nothing that you could reveal that God hasn't covered by His grace. Come out of your hiding. This is the first aspect of salvation. Uh, Secondly, we see this next good news of salvation. It's not just this past work of justification where we're saved from the penalty of sin. but, But then Paul leads our eyes to look into this future hope of salvation that we'll call the hope of glorification wherein we are saved from the presence of sin. That is certainly our hope saved from all of of sin's effects especially. You read Revelation 21, you get a great description of that. No more death, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more cancer. I can't wait for there to be no more cancer. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul. The hope of this, Christian hope, It's not wishful thinking. It's a confident expectation of what Jesus has secured. So as Christians, we are also guaranteed this salvation in a future tense, the sequence of future salvation. Look what Paul says. He says, for you died, verse 4, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So this is so cool. This hope of glorification. You will also appear with him in glory. I think what's interesting is he says this. You're hidden with Christ in God, which means this. Jesus is also in some ways hidden today, isn't he? There's a day where Jesus is going to appear, appear in glory. But there's a hiddenness to Christ. Uh, Even when Jesus walked this earth, the glory of Jesus was concealed to an extent by human flesh, was it not? Do you know the story in Matthew 17 when Jesus goes up on the mountain? What does he do? He reveals he appears, his glory to his disciples. He was transfigured before him. Listen to the way Spurgeon says it. That should probably just be every point. Listen to what Spurgeon also says about this, all right? But Charles Spurgeon says it is true that Jesus was manifest in the flesh, but it is equally true that the flesh shrouded and concealed his glory. The first manifestation was partial, it was seen through a glass. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 we, we behold as in a mirror dimly. Christ in the midst of grief, we see him, the man of sorrows. Christ in the midst, in the cloud of humiliation. Christ on earth, he's yet to appear in the strong sense of the word appearing. He is to come and shine forth. He is to leave the robes of scorn and shame behind and to come in the glory of the Father and all his holy angels with him. AKA, you ain't seen nothing yet. The way Revelation says it, have you seen this? Behold... Behold, fix your eyes. Guys, he's coming. He's coming. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. No one will miss it. It's going to be visible. He'll return bodily. He'll return gloriously. Every eye will see him. He's hidden today. A lot of people look at that, and that's why they reject God. They go, man, where is he? And our gospel is this. He came, and he's coming. He came, and just as he certainly came in history, he's going to come in the future. He's coming, and every eye will see him. He's going to appear. Again, this is our hope. Our hope is that we are going to see Jesus face to face. 1 John 3 says this, Behold, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Anybody else looking forward to that day? where you're not just reduced to your imagination. Faith will be made sight. We will see him as he is. This is the pillar of our hope. This is where it starts. Not what we get to become. That's a byproduct. But the hope is that we'll see Jesus. That separation that occurred between mankind and God in the garden, it will be restored once and for all. God will have his proper place on the throne of the universe. And we'll reign with him, the Bible says. He's going to appear. We're going to see him. You're not going to miss it. You haven't seen anything yet. And when he comes, I love this good news, Paul says, and then John says, that we're going to appear, check this out, with him in glory. With him. So it's the glorification of Jesus, but he glorifies his saints along with him. It hasn't been revealed what we shall be. I think this is an important verse. There's like books and debates as to what that is like you know, what the heavenly body is like. What the, what, I think a great explanation here is we don't fully know. I haven't been there yet, okay? Um, but we do know this, that when he is revealed, we're gonna be like him. We're gonna be like him. We shall see him as he is. That is the hope of salvation. Not just that you have been saved from the penalty of your sin, but the good news that one day you and I, we are going to be taken out of and rescued from the presence of sin. And even these bodies is what the Bible's talking about, our, 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 our fleshly, limited bodies. We have this hope that we're going to be like Jesus. First um, Corinthians 15 talks about this, how it's like a seed when we die. The seed is sown in weakness, but it's raised in strength. It's sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. I love 2 Corinthians 5. Let me read this to you. It says this, that we know that if our house, this tent, this earthly tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed we have been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, like some literally, like you got out of bed this morning and you were like, ah, Okay, literally groaning. We groan in traffic. We groan getting out of bed. We groan as we get older. And we groan in a spiritual sense for something more. We're groaning, we're longing, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. That's the hope of our salvation. You have the hope, listen, that one day you will see Jesus as he is and you will be like him. The cage of limitation, this body that we wear, will no longer be yours. You will be who you are, but you will be glorified with him. Philippians says that we are going to be conformed to his glorified body, his glorious body. This hope that is more than just theology. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us this is the focus to have in suffering as bad as it gets it's never going to get worse than it's going to be better it's never going to get worse than it's going to be good what i'm experiencing here this as paul says this momentary trial that can feel like eternity is not eternity the hope we have the confident expectation we have is the glory which shall be revealed in us and then lastly about this. I love first Corinthians fifteen forty nine. Just some Bible for you, okay? First Corinthians fifteen forty nine. This is such a great verse. I don't know why no one's got this tattooed yet. Check us out. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Just and we bear that, that dust man image, don't we? Everywhere we go, broken and flawed. But the good news is we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. That's Jesus, amen. And then lastly, let's close with this. We see this last, this last aspect and tense of salvation. It's a future tense. You have the work of justification, being saved from the penalty of sin. Our lives are hidden with Christ and God. You have this future hope of glorification that as things are, they will not forever be. And we ain't seen nothing yet. Jesus is coming back. We will be set free from these limitations we experience here on earth. We will be like Jesus. We will see him as he is, this hope of glorification. But then Paul gets real. <laughs> And he's like, all of this is great and all, but what do I do tomorrow? He he says, therefore, in other words, it's connected to the previous verse, put to death your members which are on the earth. On the earth. In other words, he's speaking about what Christ has done. He's talking about this heavenly hope, but then he comes back to reality. I almost finished the Eminem song there, but I, I held myself. Well, there goes gravity. Okay, but... He comes back to reality and he says, at the end of the day, we're still on the earth. i got to go to work tomorrow. I have this past reality. I have this future hope. And then Paul speaks into this in-between work of salvation that God is committed to in our lives as well today. It's this work of sanctification where God each and every day is further working to save us from the power of sin over our life. We're saved from the penalty. One day we'll be saved from the presence. And in the meantime, we're in this process of being transformed. The Bible says from glory to glory. That's the good news. It doesn't give grade levels. I just want that to be mentioned. That's important. Because Some of you come in here today and you go, oh my gosh, these people are all like juniors. And I'm like a first grader. And they just know so much more than me. That's not how this works. The Bible doesn't say that you, you get, you know, you become this. It says glory to glory. So, so if, you just, if you just started walking with Jesus, listen, God is just trying to do the next new thing in your life. You don't compare yourself to that other person and where they're at and you're not. It's you and Jesus. It's a work of glory to glory. It's transformation, saving us by his spirit from the power of sin, he says, put to death your members which are on the earth. First Thessalonians 4 3 says this, that this is the will of God, your sanctification, my sanctification. Okay? So if you came here today and you're praying lately, God, what's your will for my life? What do I do? What school do I go to? What person do I marry? God says, Here's my will for you, your sanctification. Okay. And the good news of this is this understanding that this is God's will. It's his heart. Meaning that your sanctification, which means to be made holy, that work, it's something that God is committed to in your life. If sanctification was something that happened if I was committed to it, it would happen for a week. And then it would go a couple years and I'd be like, okay, I'm done. (laughs) Sanctification, it's not something that we commit to. It's something God's committed to first and foremost. We've got to understand this. Just as God is the one who saves us, just as God is the one who's going to glorify us, God is also the one who sanctifies us. Can we remember that? A lot of us think God gets me in the door. God's going to get me to heaven, but He leaves this part up to me. And I just got to hopefully keep the rules, hopefully not be bad, hopefully go to church, you know, Enough? That's not sanctification. Sanctification is a work of God's spirit in our lives. It's something that God does. It's something that God is committing to. In fact, Philippians 1.6 says that we should be confident of this very thing, that the same God who began this work in me, he is the one that's gonna be faithful to carry it out. Thank the Lord. He's committed to you. He's committed to making you holy. He's committing to to transforming you so that you look more and more like Jesus every day. Don't give up. God hasn't given up on you. He's working. Now, that commitment might not feel good. Some of you are like, yeah, I know he's committed to making me holy. Let me tell you. I know that. I've experienced that. But it's a work of his grace, it's a work of his spirit. So, how should we think about that? How should we think about this salvation that we are experiencing every day? That tomorrow, when you wake up, you're being saved tomorrow. How should we think about it? Well, I think Philippians 2 gives us a good framework. It says, work out your own salvation. Now, this isn't being being made right with God. Okay, he doesn't say work for your salvation. He's talking about working something out, okay? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So a lot of us, like, we stop at the word trembling, and we go, i got to work for my salvation, i got to work this thing out. And Paul goes, stop. read the rest of the verse, right? Like, don't, i gotta, I got a full sentence to say here. The second half of this is that what you're working out is simply what I'm working in. So it, it begins with God. God is always faithful. He doesn't have idle hands in our lives. Isn't that good news? He's always working. He's always faithful. He's always convicting. He's always leading, even when we don't feel it or see it. he's, He's working in. What he calls us to do is to work out what he's working in. And so in Colossians 3, the way that Paul says it is, the way that we work out our salvation, God's doing it. He's sanctifying us. But God leads us to work it out by taking a specific approach and posture towards our sin. That's what God leads us to do. The way that God sanctifies you by your spirit is he leads you in his spirit to look at and approach your sin in a certain way. And it's a very radical way. It's not a management exhortation. You know, manage your sin. Just get in order. Make sure this one, you can keep it. But just keep it in line. Don't feed it too much, okay? Then you got this, your your manager of your sin. Okay? He he does certainly say, make friends with your sin. Or negotiate with your sin. Okay, let me let's talk. What What do you got for me? All right. He says, kill your sin. Put to death your members which are on the earth. He's speaking of sinful devices. He lists lists fornication, uh, uh, uncleanness, evil desire, covetousness, these cravings of the flesh, sexual sins, greediness, these longings of the flesh to be gratified. How should we approach it? Should we swat it away? Stop it like a fly. Stop sin. No. The spirit inspiring Paul leads us to have this posture towards sin that is this put it to death, make war, kill it. This word put to death, it means to mortify, to make a corpse of, okay? AKA like to execute, like you're the executioner of your sin. That should be our perspective towards sin. And that's gonna look a certain way. Having that posture towards sin means that I confess sin. It means I'm in community to begin with, to be able to share that with other guys and gals. It means I don't subject myself to situations that I know are going to overcome me with temptation. So if I'm recovering from alcoholism, and that's the sin I should put to death, I probably shouldn't go hang out at the bar. If I'm recovering from a porn addiction, I probably shouldn't bring a computer into my bedroom or I should probably get some software on my computer to protect me and safeguard me, or I should probably invite some other guys into my life that can speak into that. It's a posture and an attitude towards sin that looks a certain way. Like, look at your life today, and listen, I'm not going to tell you to look at your sin, because you're always looking at it. You know it. But what's your approach toward it? As you come into God's house today, as you come into this fellowship, have you been a manager of your sin? Have you been a a friend of your sin? Are you being saved from your sin? That's what God wants to do. That's his work of salvation, to sanctify us, to make us holy. And here's the good news. I, I don't say that to shame you. I say that to encourage you. I say that to encourage myself because that's what we need to hear, that God is committed to make us holy. He's committed to it but he calls us to have this approach because as those who are in him, we're those who have been saved. You have been saved. You will be saved. You are being saved. Thank you, God. Thank you for your salvation. In all of its beauty, God, not just what you have done. God, thank you for the hope of what you will do. And God, we thank you for your commitment with what you're doing. Thank you that you're committed to make us holy, God, because we often are not. So I pray, Lord, for each person in this room, that, including myself, Lord, I pray for just a real revival of your salvation in our lives. For those that are stuck in sin, for those who have taken an apathetic approach towards their sin, we pray you revive us by your Spirit. God, work in us to will and to do for your good pleasure. Make us holy, God. We pray that you would raise us up as a community here in Boca that doesn't just speak about salvation. God, may we be a community of people that experiences salvation in every way that you intended. So have your way in our lives, Lord, and be glorified now in our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.